The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, Ed, thank you so much. What uh, wonderful, very practical wisdom and insight. And uh, uh, one of the things I share when students start our program that uh, when George Pepperdine founded the university, he said he wanted to, to have an academic institution that had the higher standards of academic excellence and Christian values while preparing students for lives of usefulness. And I think what you shared with us today is, was certainly very useful uh, in terms of kind of practical tips for how to lead an, an organization and be successful. So thank you so much for doing that. Well, I have to say that I express my appreciation to particularly to John and to yourself for uh, sharing with me the idea that executive leadership is an activity or a set of skills and experiences that's different than, and segregated perhaps from talking about the responsibilities or the functions of a manager, which I outlined those five, use those five words at the opening. They're, they're not different, totally depart, uh, separated things, but they are different. Mm -hmm. So executive leadership is a category all by itself. And I would hope uh, that the university here has some coursework or classwork in, in executive leadership which is characteristics of an executive that are way beyond what the basic functions of a manager are. But many of those are habits you develop too even before you move into executive leadership. So it's, there, it's great to know about them early in a career to think about how do you begin to build those habits and practices and disciplines over time so that when you move into a more senior position you actually have the right skill set to do it effectively. So I agree. Fabulous. Well, I do also, before we get into questions with Ed, I do want to introduce his family who is with us tonight. We're mm -hmm. thrilled to have them here. They got to tour the campus earlier. His wife, Jean, is with us, so we're glad to have you with us. Stand up. <laughs> Wave at the crowd. Two of his sons, Eric and Gary, are here, and they both actually work in the company. We might ask him a few questions about that as well, but thank you all for both being here. And then Gary's wife is here, so thank you so much. And three grandchildren, so the whole family. And I want the grandkids to stand up because they got to come visit Pepperdine today. Wave at the crowd. I think these are our youngest uh, participants. So we're thrilled to have all of you with us, and we'll talk to you later about you know what he said and whether you agree with everything that he said. One of the things you talked about was your philosophy that you should get things done now, and I just want you. To, one of George Grazia Dio's favorite phrases was TNT, which is today, not tomorrow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I think that it's the same expression. Absolutely, the yeah. same thing, and he was. Uh, uh, really very religious about that and even as he got associated with Pepperdine he would hold Pepperdine's feet to the fire to make sure they got things done today not tomorrow which for an academic institution can actually be kind of a challenge sometimes uh, so it was a good good for us to have someone like that uh, yes. kind of pushing us along in that direction so. and by the way on that point again just to elaborate I did not use in my presentation I failed to use the word innovation and the innovation ties into this get it done do it now so if there's an idea that comes out well, maybe you're not going to actually accept and implement the idea, but the work that needs to be done to explore it should be done, get it done now, get it done, do it now type approach, or TNT as, as, as you say. In my mind, that approach philosophically to business could be one of the most important measures between failure and success. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to actually go to the audience. I've got some questions for Ed, but I know you all do as well. And love to see who in the audience has a question for Ed that they'd like to follow up on related to something he said in the, his remarks or anything else that you would like to ask him about. So we'll start over here. And I think we've got a microphone back here so everyone can hear you. Um, as you said, Ed, as a two-person company, uh, those characteristics weren't quite the same as a thousand. Early on, as you're kind of transitioning from two to 10 to 100, what were some of those uh, changes that you saw as the company grew and in your leadership style? Clearly, when it's two people, it's, it's two buddies. For the, we went to different colleges. He's St. Louis University, and I went to the University of Cincinnati, but we were buddies in, in, in high school. So the idea of getting along or communicating wasn't a subject. But then when you go to this five or 10 or 100 people, then you learn that you're communicating with other people in, a, in, a, in an effective manner or not. And so the, the idea that I expressed on the importance of communication is something that clearly is a characteristic of that growth from two people to say a thousand people or more. Uh, the, the communication skills in terms of the exactness are really important. There's another aspect of communication that I failed to mention before. And that has to do with what I call, uh, let's say openness, and honesty. People who are in executive leadership situations need to be thought of and looked at as being open and honest. Not telling people things, as an example in the securities industry, we had the president of a company here in Southern California who said, we are going to stay independent and have continuity forever. And they were merged out of business two years later. The people that actually look back on that person believed that he actually was lying at the time. Now, maybe he wasn't, in all fairness. But, but the idea that you look at the CEO or the executive VP of a company, and you know that when he speaks, he's speaking the truth, and that he's open. Open meaning somewhat exact, and not a lot of words that sort of camouflage what his real, real opinion is. So I, I, I would add that as a very important point to your question about to progress going forward. And I believe, but I, you have to ask other people, not me, but I believe that other people think that my approach to their discussions and their points of view is, is very, very open. And therefore, they want to hear about it. He, he, his question referred back to when you started the company. Share the story of how you named the company. I think our audience would love to hear it because it's a little bit counterintuitive to how you typically yeah. think about people naming companies. Well, again, the gentleman's name was Robert Werner. And to this day, he and I, when I'm in St. Louis, we gather and have a, uh, what we call in Mexico a cerveza uh, together. And we uh, laugh and talk. And he went out of the company and went to work for McDonnell Douglas uh, and sold his 35% interest in the company for $13,600 on a slow note. So you would, think that it, we might, <laughs> you, you would think that we might have an offensive relationship, but we don't. And Gene and I have made gifts of Wedbushing stock to him uh, since that point in time uh, that are multiples of what, what he sold uh, his 35% out at. Uh, and uh, anyway, my coming back to your point was... Naming oh, the company. Oh, naming the naming company. company. Yeah. Bob Warner's father was a CPA in St. Louis. And he, when he heard his son was going to start a broker-dealer stock and bond business, he advised him against it. And I didn't understand why he was doing that. But I sort of got a feeling that was because he thought it would go broke and that it would be a bad reputation for the family, which I mentioned, mentioned earlier. 
So when we got to decide to name the company, it was going to be either Werner and Company or Wedbush and Company. And so we, I decided it should be Werner and Company. And Bob Werner said, no, it should be Wedbush and Company. So we were sitting in his kitchen, and we flipped a nickel, a coin, on the, on the table. And it bounced on the table and rolled down on the floor. And I lost the toss. Uh, so they named it Wedbush and Company. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> So story. did I really lose? <laughs> Probably not. But it, the name of the company was Wedbush and Company when it started. In 1969, it became Wedbush Noble Cook because we acquired the Noble Cook Company, which was started in 1927 here in California. And the cook came from the Hawaii Cook family, mm -hmm. uh, the Cook Trust Company and so on. Yeah. It became Wedbush Noble Cook. Then it became Wedbush Morgan Securities when we acquired Morgan, who was a, a graduate of one of the Southern California universities here in 1927 also. And then more recently, all of our people in our marketing department in particular favored just taking it back to Wedbush Securities as a more simplified name. We were owned by Wedbush Inc., a parent company, which Eric Wedbush is president of. And Wedbush Inc., the parent company, owns a bank, Wedbush Bank, that's about four years old, and owns Wedbush Capital Partners and so on. And I tell you all this so that some of you who are looking for prospects for our activities and growth in your own careers, we're people that would love to talk with you. And so Eric Wedbush is a good contact person relative to activities beyond the securities firm. I decided early on, instead of running the holding company and getting involved in all these other activities, that my real expertise and experience was in the stock and bond business. So I stayed as president of the securities company and have been that ever since. Wonderful. Other questions? Yes, here. And then we'll go over there. We'll go here, and then we'll come back over here. Do you feel that you could start a similar business in today's economic environment and legal uh, environment? That, that, that's really a very, very good question. And I have asked myself that question uh, more recently. And certainly, you could not start it for $10,000. <laughs> that's for sure. Because you would get rejected by the regulators, as you point out. So that would not work. So you, could you start it for $100,000 or $300,000? Yes, you can. But I'm going to tell you another negative of it. When I was graduating from engineering school, I'm already, before going to graduate school, I'm already applying for a broker-dealer license with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I wrote them a letter, and they answered my letter in 13 days and approved it, effective at the end of that month, which was June 30, 1955. So that letter that I wrote them and the letter they wrote me back is hanging on our wall in our stairwell at our headquarters in downtown Los Angeles. And when I have the SEC regulators and other people in the company, I always walk them past there, and I show them those letters. And they all have a big laugh because, as you implied in your question, that's not true today. It takes six months at least to file all of the requests, answer their questions, to get approval to even start. So people are really de deterred from starting a business like this because of the huge wait time. And during that wait time, maybe they don't have any income. They can't do the work that they want to do. So it's a, it's a real struggle. From an economic point of view, my answer to your question is, I believe that, yes, you could start a securities firm, some element of it, independent contractor, whatever the case may be, and, and, and you could, if this is what business is in your heart, you could go forward with it. It's the regulatory component of your question that is the delaying uh, challenge. Back here, question. Just wanted to start by saying thanks for coming out and sharing your story. Uh, Thank it's you. inspirational to hear. 
Um, obviously, you've uh, become a huge success, and your whole story is a success story. I wonder if you have any, uh, if you had to pick two, like, mini failure stories or mistakes or changes in philosophy or just uh, those those uh, those points where you knew you had to make a change or made a mistake. If you are, could you share those. are you talking about mistakes that I see in the industry or mistakes that I made? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, didn't hear what, I didn't hear what he said. Uh, I'd like it, at least at least one uh, from you personally. That's that's what I'm most interested in. But if you've got, it sounds like you got something for the industry, and I'd, I'd be happy to hear that too. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank I'll you. repeat the thing from the industry, and that is the overuse of leverage. That was real. I mean, for for Merrill Lynch, and I hate to be critical of Merrill Lynch. I mean, they're 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 a godmother to the industry, so to speak. But for them to use use leverage, and the guy that was running the company at the time, John Thane, who I got to know personally, as a fellow engineer. And his, when I saw the leverage that they had in the company, the financial leverage, I was shocked. And that's what took them under was the leverage. That's the same thing that happened with Lehman Brothers. So, and that isn't just in the securities business. That would be in technology or any other business as well. The overuse of leverage, and how about being a high school student and uh, overborrowing? How about having debit cards and credit cards outstanding that you can't pay? How about having student loans of 150000 when you graduate and you can't figure out how to do it? Uh, we've got an attorney who wants to work for us in investment banking, and he's from the University of Cincinnati, recommended by the dean, and he has 176,000 of student loans that he has to pay. That's a form of leverage uh, and a, an overuse of leverage, but maybe it was necessary while he was in school. So I really focus on the financial wherewithal, as mom and dad do with the, their children, and as we did as well. And, and so now come down to personal things that, that I've experienced in, in, in going through these things. Some people say that my, one of my failures, or let's say inadequacies, would be not to uh, transmit authority. And you've all heard this before about, wait a minute, I don't have the authority to do that. My boss won't give me the authority. He's, he's very restrained in giving authority. So when you're starting a two-man business and you're growing it, it's very likely that I was properly labeled as a person not giving authority sufficiently and promptly enough. But then I learned something in going to graduate business school, that there's another word besides authority, and it's called responsibility. So when you're talking about authority and the passing of authority, think about responsibility and authority. People who have authority but don't accept responsibility, that's a real failure. So if you have responsibility, in my opinion, in my world today, if you have responsibility, if you take responsibility, you got the authority. And so that's an area where you can make a mistake and where I'm sure I made some uh, inadequate mistakes and also it leads to be sometimes being a little slow in growing. Somebody could look at all, the growth of our firm and say you went from two people to a thousand. Why shouldn't you be at three thousand? You see, so that could be uh, that could be a negative too in answering your question about about take, being too slow, being uh, lacking giving authority, uh, lack of being aggressive uh, aggressive enough. But after what we've seen in the financial arena, particularly the last Starting in 2006 is when I really got nervous about what was going on. Uh, what we've seen in the last uh, five, six years is completely different. It's even more serious than what happened in 1929, according to the history books. So uh, being conservative and being careful with your financial activities is still as important today as it was in 1929 and, and so on. So even though we've been somewhat conservative, I guess, it's kind of hard to uh, find fault with that. Well, it helped you weather the last five or six years 
more effectively than many of the financial services firms did. It's a good point. And see, you use the word weather means get through it. Right. But there's also, it's an opportunity. See, it creates opportunity when you're doing that, when you're going through that. So firms like ours is an example, which we're proud of, is that when those kinds of calamities come, we actually grow. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, we didn't have any layoffs. Yes, we've terminated employees, colleagues, we call them, uh, before, but we didn't have any department closures or massive layoffs. Uh, we, I saw in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Morgan Stanley was announced, and I'm sure they're not proud of this announcement, but some reporter got a hold of it, they're gonna lay off 1,600 people, even in today's uh, more positive financial world. So not doing that kind of thing is important. So we're having this negative environment, uh, if you operate conservatively, then becomes an opportunity to, to actually grow the company. Mm -hmm. Great. Question back here and then over here. Hi, Ed. Um, I'm Cedric Watkins. I'm a JD MBA. Uh, I'm sorry, here. I'm not hearing you clearly. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Cedric Watkins. I'm the owner of a wealth management and estate planning firm. Great. We've had for 20 years, and uh, JD and my MBA is from uh, Pepperdine. My question to you is I have 25 employees, and three of those are my children. My youngest daughter is getting out of law school in June at, from Columbia. What challenges, if any, have you had? when you've had your children work in your firm? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get up and, and answer this question. <laughs> Stand out here in front of family. They know how I, how I am about this. Going back in time, at least 20, 25 years ago, when I thought about this question coming that you're raising, because let's say our children were five years old at the time. Maybe they were 10, 15, but they were not yet out in the employment world. I was anti-nepotism. And my definition was because of what I saw and what happened with nepotism harming company, I would became anti-nepotism, which means that a career opportunity in our company for children of our family was not there. The board of directors of our company, we had a poor, by the way, as a private company, we've had a public board of directors for decades. One of the gentlemen on the board named Ross Cobb was the president of Sutro in San Francisco, which a company was born in 18, 1850. It's now gone. But anyway, he was on our board, and he said my attitude about uh, anti-nepotism was wrong. And he asked for permission to meet with Gary Wedbush uh, in San Francisco, which he did when Gary was working in another firm. And I don't know if he met with Eric Wedbush, but based on what he did and the rest of the directors, that turned me around on that subject. And so then our two sons became employees. And our daughter, who lives in Washington, D.C., and whose husband works for RAND, uh, she is, uh, a semi-employee of the company, just had two new babies in the last couple of years, and she's uh, writing a book on the company. So anti-nepotism has gone away. But at the same time, what's really important about that is that the culture of the company is not spread around to the point where it says the members of the family are the automatic heirs of positions in the company. They have to compete with and do as well or better than other people in the company to inherit those positions. So you can't guarantee that that's gonna be the image, but if you have that philosophy and people know you have it, at least they know that they have a chance to compete for positions in the company. Think about how many people in this room that were gonna go to work for a company and they know up front that they have no chance whatsoever to be president of the company. That's certainly a negative in their decision making about going to work for that company. 
So nepotism is a very important issue, but in today's business world, no matter how large the company is, while there are people, and I'm convinced now that people in your family that want to work in a company should have that opportunity and can do really well with it, that the idea of nepotism influencing the selection of executives, that has to be pushed off to the side and not happen. It's an excellent question that you're, you're asking because in the real world today, families are definitely part of a business. I have a, I like to add a footnote to that question. One of the, I found that one of the most important things is continuity of the company. How many people in this room want to go after graduation to, out for a position knowing that the company may be gone in two or three years by sale or merger or something like that? That's really an important point. And so if people believe that the ownership of the company is committed to continuity, they're going to be much more interested in the affiliation of their employment and their life's work in, the, in that kind of a company. Very good. So Gary and Eric, did you feel like you got any special privileges working in the company because you were the founder's sons? <laughs> uh, I think it was the actually opposite of that. I, I just got promoted, I've been here for about 15 years, I just got promoted out of the mail room. And he did actually start in the mailroom. He was telling me this earlier, so he did start at the bottom and work. I think he's exaggerating a little. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have another question right over here. Kind of in the middle. And I can repeat it for the camera. My name is Farhad Rostami, and I'm an adjunct faculty at Pokerdan. Can you hear me? I'm going to come a little closer to the And I can repeat it, too. Okay. Okay. Thank you for sharing your words of wisdom. And also thank you for sharing with us your thoughts of, of this university, this campus. Um, you spoke with eloquence about um, the rules of engagement, the rules of running a business. Say that again, the, ru the, the rules of running a business. Oh, the rules, okay, thank you. My question is about AIG. Um, I remember many years ago, I, I still have that. It's a print ad from one of their advertisements in the back of a National Geographic magazine. It says basically, it's talking to a grandfather about the grandchild, and it says at the end, you don't have to worry because we'll be there for the grandchild and for generations to come. And obviously, they were not. They, were, they had to be helped to stay in business. My question to you is, what happens um, in real life, in real situation, many of those rules are broken. People know them, but they don't follow them when there is there is an urgency when you have to perform quarter after quarter. And this happens a lot in US, in our financial institutions, and also a lot of the companies, more so in US than the rest of the world. But my question to you is, what happens that we are more in this situation than many other countries or companies? Well, we're in that situation perhaps more because there's more competition, particularly in public companies, and there's less family control of continuity uh, as there may be in some European countries or in companies within those, within those countries. I'm not an expert on this subject, but I believe that the idea of continuity in this country is more open to, say, democracy and to competition, uh, the real world, whatever, life and death, whereas in some of the European countries, and maybe in Asia as well, there, there's, there's more uh, exacting family control or governmental control uh, over, over the uh, continuity of the company. But that doesn't mean we should give up on a subject like that. It's my uh, strong opinion that continuity is a key characteristic. But that doesn't mean 
that every firm that started should have a continuous forever life. There are some businesses where you could look at it and you could practically say, hey, that business should be merged into another company. Now, in our case, as an example, we've had approximately six acquisitions over a period of, say, 20, 25 years, small acquisitions, a brokerage firm in Phoenix, Arizona, a small brokerage firm, say, in uh, San Francisco, La Jolla, California. And so these are groups of people who are at the end of their, say, their life career, and rather than let their firm die, they see us as a strength, and they say, they call up and say, hey, Ed, take, come see us, take us over. We need, we need some help, So, which is a real compliment. So there's going to be times in people's lives and in business development where, where mergers or sellouts should, should, should occur. But I'm a strong believer philosophically in continuity. Now, there's one other aspect of that. I have seen in the securities industry, presidents of companies get up in front of their personnel and say, guarantee that they're going to be here forever and nothing's going to happen to them. And almost every person I've heard say do that has disappeared. Bateman, Eichler, Hill, Richard, some of you know that name here in California, their president said that and they were gone within two years. What's the, what's the firm, Gary or Eric, that... Alex Brown. Pardon? Alex Brown. Yeah, Alex Brown in Baltimore, Maryland, founded back in the 1800s. And their new president came in and made the same promise verbally and announced we're going to be here forever and he's gone in a couple of years. Uh, so I have stopped short of saying that to anybody. I purposely don't say that because it's sort of like you say it and a black crowd comes over <laughs> <laughs> and you have some event in your company which then forces you into a discontinuous. Uh, and, and I feel that in responsibility to clients and to colleagues who work in the company, that continuity is really important to them in their lives. And so it's a commitment. I'm philosophically in that commitment because of clients and because of colleagues working in the company because that's, that's what they want. We have people in our company from all over the world and this is something that I never thought of when I grew up in St. Louis that I would have exposure. I never even heard of some of these countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then as I learn things and I go through life, I find that those people over there are still killing each other. But when they work in our company, they sit side by side and they work together and they're friends. Uh, we have people from all the countries in Asia and I'm very proud of the ability for us to bring people together, and any of us, I've learned that we, I can't look at Asia as in one ensemble. The language differences over there are every bit as even more different than what they are between, say, English and various languages in Europe. I've, I've learned this in speaking with people. So we have a very large population from, from all over Asia, and then we also have, interestingly, a very good population from very high levels of education. We've got PhDs in engineering, we've got medical doctors, we've got PhDs in other science areas. Most of them work in investment banking and in research. And they just want to do the securities business. Instead of practicing medicine, they want to do uh, stocks and bonds. So again, that's why I say follow your heart and do what your heart tells you to do. Well, sorry my answer so long to your question. Well, and we probably- You get me very enthusiastic about the question. <laughs> And that's going to lead me to my last question as we need to wrap up the evening here. You talked about passion and how important that was as you decide what you want to do in your life. And it's clear that you're still extremely passionate about what you do, even though you've been doing it for nearly 60 years. How do you maintain that passion for what you're doing over such a large, long career and through a lot of tumultuous times, as particularly recently? So 
Is there any secret to that, or how do you maintain that passion and that enthusiasm for what you do? I, I frankly, I don't know what the secret is. <laughs> but I can tell you this, though, that you have to have good health, some form of good health, otherwise you can't do the work. You can't compete. So all of you should do the best you can to take care of your health mm -hmm. as you're going through school, uh, all the different things that, that relate to health. Uh, bad health at 45 years of age, 50 years of age, and you're, you're now, you have to go on the other side of the, of, of the slope. And I think that the, the interest in the business, the commitment to the business, philosophically following your heart is also a really a key component. But, so you've got to have the health to do it. You have to want to do it and be excited. And the business has changed so dramatically during my career. And I, can, I just have to laugh at myself that when I was in engineering school, semiconductors had not even been developed. They were just being developed at the time, but they weren't being used. We had computers that were nothing but mechanical machines, cards folding back and forth and so on. And then semiconductors came, then computers came. And one of the biggest developments was computer-to-computer -computer communications, which you take for granted, because that's what it all is today. But it wasn't too long ago that those communications didn't even exist. And when you'd go into a trading room, a market-making trading room of a brokerage firm, it was screaming and hollering on the phones and back and forth. Now it's all on computer. You walk in there and you wonder if the people are alive. <laughs> it's, so, it's so quiet and, and so on. So those are, that's the best answer I can that's give great. to that very tough question. Well, thank you. You're really yeah. an inspiration to all of us. And thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom with us this evening. Thank you. I want to say it was a pleasure. It was indeed a pleasure and an honor for me to come here and chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys.